morning, Bill. And good morning, all. Uh, what a wonderful time of worship. Uh, Gio and, and team, that was uh, really put us in the presence of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would continue your presence now as we open your word. Uh, as we have been doing so, may you fill us with your spirit. May the words that are spoken not be my words, but be your, your words. May you speak to each of us individually with encouragement and with exhortation and with power, with love and with grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in that marvelous series or, or time of the year when we're thinking specifically about Lent and about Easter and preparing ourselves for this incredible time of the year. And our series is Reborn. Uh, what a marvelous concept that Jesus and God don't just give us a new start in life, but that through the power of the Spirit, we have a new life to start. Uh, we, we're made new. We're made new in a kingdom that is responsive and able to move in God's power. Last week, if you were here, Kevin spoke, and he spoke extremely effectively about the kind of follower we are of Jesus. Are we merely a kind of a social media follower where out of curiosity or association with someone else, you, you, you say you're a follower, and it means that you sort of pay a little bit of attention to what goes on in their life, but there's no real commitment, there's no real engagement. But the question that Kevin asked us, are we going to be more than just that? Are we going to be more than just the follower just plays a sort of curiosity kind of interest? Or are we going to be a follower that... that seeks to align our life and our understanding with the rabbi, with the great rabbi, with the teacher Jesus. Kevin gave that marvelous image that to be associated with a, a rabbi, to be a follower, to be instructed in that way, meant to have your identity and your connection so strong that you were even prepared sometimes to do outlandish things. Uh, we are coming up next week to the uh, amazing Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and the, uh, and the preparation for this feast that we celebrate each week. And Jesus told his followers, as Kevin said so well, to, to go and basically steal a donkey. And if somebody says, yeah, we got this covered. Uh, you know, unusual behavior for, uh, for people. But are we deeply aligned with the rabbi? A great question for Lent. And we were left with a, a verse that I think summarizes really the heart of those of us who wish to challenge ourselves and you to, uh, about what Easter is, this, this amazing verse from Philippians. I want to know Christ, right? That, that, that desire that we sang so beautifully in that lost song, that, that the air we breathe would be infused with a presence and with a longing for God himself. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participating in suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. That Easter would be truly real for us in the day-to-day -day messiness and confusion and sometimes uh, difficulties of life. That, that God's presence would transform it and bring about uh, both a taste of this amazing sacrifice that was made on our behalf, that we would at times make it on the behalf of those that we love and care for, and that we would experience that ultimate statement, that ultimate infusion of, of the power and the eternity of God in our lives itself, that we would experience the resurrection. 
So that's the recap. What we want to look at this week is, is another passage that leads us really on the way to Jerusalem with, with Jesus from the book of Matthew. And the passage is this amazing one that we've entitled the Jesus Yoke for today, looking at this passage from Matthew chapter 11. And it's going to be up on the screen. I wonder if uh, you would read it with me together. We'll, we'll do this in, in unison this morning because I, I don't want you to just sit passively. I want you to capture a bit of the sense of this verse again. So read with me. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What an amazing declaration. You know, this is in the same book where Jesus was, of course, speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, you know, be perfect as I am perfect. The standards of, uh, of moral righteousness were great. But in this passage, he's bringing out a, a different sense of, of what's going on, and our goal this morning is to try to draw this out to try to bring this verse alive, that it would sing in our hearts as we've sung this morning in the praises of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I get weary sometimes. I, sometimes I, I get extremely tired, uh, but sometimes people I love get tired too, and, and this is sort of a, uh, you know, how tired you can get. Uh, this is on the right. This is a, a six-week-old Ellie. Uh, Joy was helping uh, Adrian out and, uh, and uh, Ellie fell asleep and Joy was folding laundry. So it seemed like a perfect spot. Right? And uh, this is uh, Addie on the other side, uh, asleep. Her doll, reassuringly, is wide awake. Uh, you know, do you get weary? I, I'm sure we all get weary. The world is a wearisome place sometimes. Yeah, there, there's challenges going on. Even our Lord Jesus got weary. He got so weary that he could sleep in the back of the boat in the midst of a storm. I mean, that's tired. I, I, I don't think I've ever been quite that tired, although I feel like sometimes I fall asleep on my feet. Are we weary? Do we come to Jesus when we're weary? And, and do we get reassurance? Do we get welcome? Do we get refreshment? But in our weariness, do we, do we imagine we take on a yoke? Right? Yeah, that, that's the image that Jesus has in mind in this particular passage, is that, you know, is, is this really what we want? We want to take on a yoke with Jesus? You know, that, that we want to be in, in this kind of situation? I, I, I don't know. I, I hope you have a love for the humbler creatures sometimes, but you look at this particular picture, and you know, what an image to be in alignment with Jesus, right? To, to, to be in, in with a... a, a a member of the cattle family, right? To, to be there and to be, to be present. And, and the one who's in the yoke with you is God and Jesus himself. You know, certainly, I think that we can extract from such a message and such a passage some really amazing things. Um, you know, the great benefits that are associated with this, that we are on the team. We made it. I don't know if anybody else has ever tried out for a, a sports team or auditioned for a musical performance or for a, an acting role or whatever, you know, or a job interview as far as that goes. And, and this is, the, you know, the, the first aspect of this is, is God saying, I will partner with you. Right? I, I'm, I'm with you. We're on the team. We're working together. We're in the same yoke. And that itself is a pretty remarkable thing. We're on the team, not only a team, but the team with God. 
We're on a team where we get to be in partner with God. There's so many people who feel they never measure up, that they're not good enough, that they're not ever going to be chosen, that they don't have the, the skills, the talents, they don't have the recognition to ever achieve that, that, that job interviews or auditions, one after the other, have been a failure. We are on the team. We, we've made it. There, there's a guy named Ben Zander, who uh, I'm not sure if any of the other people have come across. He's the uh, conductor of the Boston Pops Orchestra. He also teaches in a local school, and he teaches some really gifted musicians. And he goes to the beginning of the class, and he says to them, first of all, relax, you've all passed. In fact, you all get an A. From now on, we're just going to learn together. And we're going to celebrate the things that we sometimes struggle with and we, we, we get wrong. That's where we start our Christian life, right? Not trying to prove ourselves to God, but in fact being accepted, being welcomed. There's huge relief in that, right? The, the guilt, the shame, the, the incredible burden of, of life's failures and weights is lifted from us. And we're, we're put in communion. We're put in the harness with Jesus himself to, to be part of that. Our lives are no longer ever meaningless. Right? The, 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 what we're there, we're there with Jesus. We're never alone anymore. We may feel alone. Sometimes we have to look to the side and see that remarkable other person in the, in the yoke with us and know that that's significant and that's a value. Even death in this way is a value. That, that no sparrow falls to the ground without being noticed is, is one of the amazing passages that, that God is the watcher over the sparrows that fall. God knows your life and your struggles. Uh, that, that, that's, his intimacy is there and that is part of the reassurance of this verse as well. Even our deaths can be a, a death of triumph, a death of victory, a death of, uh, of faithfulness. And I'm sure many of you know that you know, we have been blessed in this church by those who became sick and who have died, but, but died in great grace and in great faith. And, and were a fantastic encouragement for, for those around them. They, they weren't down about what was going on. They were in the presence of God even before they fully entered in through death. All of those things, I think, are, are, are somewhat implied by the passage, and we're going to dig a bit deeper into that as well. Uh, I, I've got up here this sort of a, a bit of a remembrance. I don't know about you when you were growing up, if there was ever a time in your life growing up where all of a sudden something happened to you or you heard something, and you said, that's important. This is profound. This is really valuable to know this. Really important. And the first time that ever happened to me, I was actually in the movie Mary Poppins. I was eight years old, and, and was, I, I didn't know anything about the movie, and I went with, with my family and was uh, you know, sitting there, and there was this crazy scene near the beginning of the show where, in fact, they had to clean up the nursery. And you might remember the line, but you know, Mary Poppins' character says, in every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun, and snap, the job's a game. And I thought, that's really important. That's really valuable, because if you can find the fun... Life gets so much more interesting. I don't know about you, but I, in my job, I got some jobs I don't like doing much at all. There's lots of drudgery. But if I can turn those around and find the fun in them, they become tra transformed. I sometimes have to ma mark massive stacks of exams. 
And it's really time-consuming. It takes a huge amount of concentration. And my natural tendency is not to like it. But if I can get curious about what they've understood and what they haven't understood and what they've, what they've seen and where I can do better, if I can fan my curiosity, the task is much more easy. And so my whole secret of life has been that I am incredibly undisciplined about doing things that I merely have to do, but I'm often quite good at getting myself to want to do the things I have to do. And it transforms everything. That, that attitude that says, I have to do this versus I get to do this. The significance here is far more profound than that. What this verse is implying is in these simple, menial tasks that you sometimes do in open, when you're an oxen in, in a yoke, you know, a plowing up a field of the ordinary, everyday things of feeding, that those things can be an act of worship and of service. That all aspects of your life, no matter how trivial, can be committed to God and be turned into something that is an act of reverence, an act of gratitude, an act of worship, an act of profound praise. If we can catch that, if I can continue to, to push myself to understand that in the, in the most simple ways, life changes. The, the, the burden of being a Christian is no longer heavy. It's no longer wearisome. But, but it's a joy and delight because God is in even those simple things that we do. Now, even in those restless nights when I don't sleep well. That, that even in those moments they can be committed and turned in a time of prayer and praise. And the odd thing is when I do that I fall asleep. It, it's, it, it's a transformative thing. If... if you know, I have a vision for Forest Brook, and, and there's others who share this. It's that all of us would understand that we're missionaries and that we're servants of God in all the many activities of our life. It's not just those that go to the Philippines or to Honduras, but all of us who go into our everyday life that can be acts of worship and of service in those simple ways of, of being yoked to Jesus. It, 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 it's, it's revolutionary and it's profound. And it is what we get to do. We get to partner with Jesus. One of my favorite verses from all time is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, this is a, a remarkable passage, uh, again, for talking about the nature of what it is to be in the yoke. All this ministry is what Paul is saying. All this ministry is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. That's Easter. Not counting people's sins against them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. What an incredible task to be given. Right? To, to be the, the mouthpiece, the spokesperson, the, the, the ones who, who get to play out the, the, the Easter story in our lives by death, by resurrection, by the ministry itself, which is at its heart reconciliation, to, to bring about the, the, the restoration of people together. My eldest daughter has been married for about 12 years, and she's been married to a, a, a delightful guy named Tim Havercroft, uh, Tim works in uh, conciliation. He works as a, as a counselor to bring about mediation between parties that are at odds. 
And he confessed to us a, a, a short time ago that when he goes into a room and people are yelling at each other and they're, they're, they're full of anger and, 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 and great violence and anxiety and they're, they're, they're fighting back and forth, he goes in and he just delights that he gets a chance to be there and try to bring about uh, understanding and reconciliation. To me, in, in, in that um, heart-aching and, and courageous ministry, there is this verse. This is the partnership of, of bringing parties that are odds and, and, and bringing them to reconciliation. It's not like it's always easy. It's not like he or anyone else always succeeds. But, but in that, there's the ministry of God itself. All these things that I've said so far are true. I, I think they're all true. They're all of great value. They all are part, perhaps, of what this amazing verse is telling us. But as I reflected on, on this passage from Matthew 11 and read this chapter over and over again, it struck me that there's something really fundamental that, that, that needs to be captured here as well as all of these other things. You know, what are the burdens and, and the anxiety, the weariness that, that leads to this? You know, what, what, we are not clearly promised lives of ease. I, I think one of the, the great misunderstandings of this passage might be that you think that you accept Jesus' yoke and all of a sudden you never have a trouble with mortgage or finances or, or funds or no one ever gets sick or there's no you know, conflict or difficulties in your family and, and that you, know, you never get fired from your job and, and life is good. Right? And if we tend towards that, I think we are moving very much towards a kind of a, a idolatry, a kind of materialism that says the circumstances of our life are what dictate whether God can use us or not. Right? But, but this, the passage in context is not, not saying that life is going to be easy and smooth and all of a sudden you move from a, you know, a, a difficult life to the life of a, you know, a lottery winner or a beer commercial or something, you know, with everybody young and healthy and having a good time. Right? That's not, Jesus promises that in this world we will have trouble. You know, so, so what is more at the heart of this? There's just too many passages that contradict an easy understanding. By the way, I, mean, I think it's extraordinarily easy for us as, as modern people in the 21st century to look down on the, the struggles that Israel had over Baals and Asherah poles and, and the idolatry of their time and not realize to what extent we're tempted to, to judge the, the presence and the power of God only by our own comfort and our own psychological well-being. I don't think that's what we're called to. We're called to this life of identity with Jesus himself, which isn't always easy, but it's certainly worthwhile. But in context, what does it say? And, and the context is just absolutely fascinating. And I encourage you to look back at Matthew 11 uh, as we um, leave here and go through this week and, and, and read one of these gospel accounts and brings us up to Easter. But Matthew 11 starts off with legitimate questions, perhaps on the part of John the Baptist's uh, disciples. Uh, Jesus was, was sort of uh, touted as John as being somebody of great significance and, and I think John, like many others, felt that this was a political leader that was going to bring about political revolution against the Romans. But that's not what Jesus was doing and, and you know, John is in prison and Jesus is doing his thing and a bunch of disciples and say, like, who are you? And um, this is what Matthew eleven two says. 
When John heard in prison that the, what the Messiah was doing, he sent word to his disciples and said to them, are you the one who is to come? Or are we waiting wait, to wait to another? Did I, did I get it a little bit wrong here? Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. See and hear and look and see what God is doing. A little bit later on in the same passage, in in verse 16 it says, Jesus is reflecting, what do I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. You know, upbeat, fun song, and you didn't celebrate. We wailed, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And then there's this remarkable passage where Jesus denounces some of the towns that he's done great miracles in. And the denunciation is, is, is powerful and, and, and pretty graphic. Then he began to reproach the cities in which he had done most of his great deeds of power because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than it was for you. They saw great things and they did not respond. John the Baptist was seeing things, but somehow missing some of the points. And at this time, Jesus said, the passage that leads right up to our passage, at this time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The whole passage in Matthew 11 is bringing about the idea that our primary and principal responsibility as people of God is not to do great things ourselves, but to stand back and watch what God can do. In the road to Jerusalem that we're following to Lent, we are going to follow the steps of Jesus, the Via Della Rosa. We'll we'll, we'll follow Jesus and we'll see the mockery, we'll see the shame of someone who has the power of the world in his control. We'll see those things and we'll see that he does not act. Power was relinquished, not grasped. That, that, That God's love poured out and took the punishment that we deserved. And we sit back only in the audience and we watch and we say, God, how great your love is for us. And then we see the power of God revealed in the resurrection morning, something that is part of the Christian message and the Christian story. 
I, th I think the, the, the profound truth of this passage now comes out. Come to me, all who are trying to achieve uh, acceptance with God or with man or trying to achieve great things for yourself. All you are weary and are, and are carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart, even like an ox or a, or a cattle. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our primary role, our primary task is to behold, to see what God is doing. Our primary responsibility, this breakthrough, I love this image that Rachel has given us for, for Easter of this uh, you know, the pavement through which a seedling is bursting out. An image of spring, an image of Easter, but an image of rebirth, an image of coming again to life, that our primary responsibility is not to obey the many demands and, and commands of the law, or even to be great movers and shakers. That's not our primary response. That may flow out of what God is doing in our midst, but rather to live a life of gratitude and worship, to see what God is doing, to be hold what God has done, and to see God's goodness and provision and to welcome that into our lives. That's what Chorazin and Bethsaida did not do. They saw great acts of power. That's what John the Baptist needed to see again, right? that God is in the presence. In your life, in my life, will come God's sightings. That there'll come those moments where, where, where God just reveals himself and opens us up. And our key responsibility, our key light load is not to create those moments. We can't do that. But it's to, to celebrate them when they come, to, to revel in, in what God is doing and to respond in, in gratitude and in reverence. To have a life of, of worship in response to the amazing things that God did when he came to earth and took upon, our, uh, took upon himself our sins and our betrayal and our shame and our rebellion and our violence and our failures. The, the, the light burden comes from simply standing back and say, behold the Son of Man. Are we alert to God's sightings? Yeah. Here on the edge of spring, spring comes officially on Tuesday. Uh, here on the uh, eve of, uh, of Easter, you know, it, here at Forest Brook, in this sanctuary, do you come in the morning not just to sing songs and have a vicarious experience of someone else's spirituality, but, but, but in fact to open your heart to God and to let God do an amazing work in you to, to, to heal and to bless and to fill you with his power and his spirit and his love. In Ajax and in Durham, our, our, our mission and our lives and our work and our place and our family and our neighbors, in our tasks, in our travels, in our, in our hotel rooms, in our airplanes, in our day-to-day in our -day activities, in our go train, in all of those things simply to, to, to be ready to respond to God's initiative to God's power, to, to be there expectant, to be coming to the service expectant, to hear in the, in the scriptures that are read, in the passages that are sung, in, in, the, in the words that, that, that lift up our hearts, to, to have that encounter with God himself. I, I'm sure I, I am not the only one here who, who knows that they get 
the resurrection at certain levels of my life, but in no other levels, they haven't yet penetrated. And after my 45 years of being a Christian, what is totally clear to me is that God, that Jesus in my life, is in fact humble and gentle. That, that in fact does not force open doors and doesn't use ramrods and break into areas that I've partitioned off still. But he waits for us to open up our lives and say, come in to my fear of death or failure, my, my fear or my, my guilt. Come into my uh, all aspects of my life, my money, my power, my sexuality, my social relationships, my relationships with my family. Fill those things with your power and with your presence. My everyday life become alive with who you are and what you're doing. It's always dangerous to read something that is particularly significant to you in a, in a church. Uh, it, the book of the Bible is entirely full of poetry. There are hundreds and hundreds of, of hymns and psalms and, and, and places where you just sit back and worship. I, I, some years ago, stumbled across this remarkable poem by Michael Sedeo. Uh, he uh, captures something about everyday moments being God moments. Uh, if you hate poetry, then just meditate on your own for a little bit and challenge yourself to uh, open up a little bit. But uh, if you love it, sit back and enjoy for just a couple minutes. What does it mean suddenly, effortlessly, to touch the core? Mostly in the glow of friends, but today just strolling the length of a city street. Carnival moments. The apple back on the tree in a garden lost, a garden longed for. I move among traders, stacks of aubergines, rows of tiger lilies, rings of silver cornelian, a feast of action. Cross-legged an Indian plays music on a saw blade, glittering in the sun. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread. First hearing that story, I bled for Adam. I bump into an acquaintance and begin to apologize. Taking a break, I'll get back to work tomorrow. Puritan me. So afraid of paradise. Anaxagoras the sage, a century before Plato, molded over on a street like this in Athens. First question, why are we here on this earth? Answer, to behold. No excuses called for. Contemplation, seen, fierce and intense. This majesty, this fullness, does it all foreshadow another Eden? The air is laden with yearning. I can't say for what, and I can't be silent either. Rejoice, rejoice. To attest the gift of the day, to saunter and gaze, to own the world. At Easter time, we're not called to do great things. At Easter time, and as we prepare for Lent, we're not called to, uh, to be ambitious for our own lives. Even some of the things we do for Lent are usually sort of mini self-improvement projects sometimes of, of you know, i got to lose some weight or i got to be a bit careful about the you know, way I'm spending my time. But we're called to behold this, a feast, a feast of celebration, a feast of a new covenant, of body that was broken for us to bring us back into relationship with God, not because we deserved it, but because God's love is overwhelming a new covenant, a new basis for a relationship with God that's built in the sacrifice of Jesus himself. This is not cannibalism. This is celebration of, a, of an amazing God 
who, who loves us so extravagantly that he brought us to Easter. He brought us to this celebration. He brought us to it as a statement of his love. And our main job at Easter is to stand back and behold. Behold the love of God that stood and, and, and took the, the, the shame and the agony of the cross and stood there being mocked with the power to do something about it and left his arms spread out on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. The everlasting grace that comes into our life and says, simply see and accept those God moments where in an incredible sunset or in a moment with family or in, in a, a quiet prayer or in a quiet victory over something small, we see the power and the presence of God. What an amazing joy it is to live a life of exhilaration based on a partnership with the humble one beside us, the one who won't force his way into our life, but invites us over and over again to fill his power, his strength, his control, his wisdom as he leads us in the path of green pastures and of an easy yoke. It's easy and light and easy to do. I want to close again with that remarkable prayer from Philippians that Kevin brought to our attention last week. Amazing desire, a profound desire. May you pray with us together and with me. I want to know Jesus, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. A reality in the world that changes every other reality. A reality that says life is not materialism. Life is not just a a sequence of genetic impulses. It's not just a bunch of material things. But, But the power of God was released. And in the resurrection, we have the foretaste of our resurrection. Of life eternal with God himself. That's not a bad thing to hope for. That's a something that we can taste and foretaste now. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are a great God. You are a powerful God, and you have called us into your presence to watch you at work, to see how great your love is, to see your power, to see your holiness, to see your death, to see your resurrection, and to be here at this table to accept a sacrifice made in our behalf and know that we stand here not because of anything we've achieved, not because of our power or insights or intellect or whatever achievements that we have, but we're here because you've invited us. You've invited us to remember this act, to remember this supper, this breaking of bread amongst friends who are frail, this new covenant in your blood. We pray that you would bless us as we partake of it now, So we pass it one to another that we would again be the people of God in great celebration of what you've already done, in anticipation of what you will continue to do, and filled with the hope of the resurrection. For you are a great God. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.